Um, so I was way too old when I had my wisdom teeth out. I was 27. I didn't have insurance uh, early on in my adulthood. Didn't have insurance when I was 27 either. Uh, so I figured I just couldn't afford it, so I'd just make it work, right? Like, how bad could it really be? And they'd hurt for a while, and then they'd be okay. It's kind of on and off like this for most of my early adulthood. But the off period became shorter and shorter, and the on period became uh, harder and harder to deal with. So eventually, I just bit the bullet, um, no pun intended, and they scratched together enough for Eugene's cheapest wisdom tooth extraction. Did a lot of research to find it. And I had them taken out. And it was horrible. Not because it was cheap. They did a really good job. But I was 27. And I don't know what you know about how the mouth works. Um, but the longer you wait to have your wisdom teeth out, the more they decide they're a part of your body. <laughs> So at 27, all four of my wisdom teeth were at least partially impacted to the jaw. One was completely fused, which means rather than pliers, they used the bone saw. It's never great when they say, yeah, we're going to have to use the saw. It was painful. It was about a week of recovery. Youngsters, get your wisdom teeth out early. What's my point? Um, we talked about sin last week. Talking about it again this week. We will a little bit next week. There's a lot of nuance to this topic. And there's lots of grace there for us to walk in it together. But it's uncomfortable. I imagine some of you looked at the scripture reading and heard it read and went, oh boy, this is uncomfortable. And digging this stuff out often seems more painful and more costly than just doing our best to ignore it. And I know that's a little cliche. But the truth is the difficulty of the conversations that we're having, the conversations that these passages hopefully lead us to, is way better than living with the constant pain of not dealing with this oppression that we feel under the world and the devil and the flesh. And the longer that we ignore these things, the more fused these malignant powers seem to be in our lives. And the harder that finally acknowledging them and dealing with them it is. So for our own sake, for our church's sake, and for the kingdom's sake, let's just dig in. Okay. Now, we can't lose sight of where we are, though. We're 14 weeks, I believe, into this letter. One letter, though, this is the tricky part about preaching on Sundays. This is one letter. The Ephesians probably read it in one sitting. We've been talking about it for months. All the rich and beautiful language that Paul has used to get to here are still the basis of what we're talking about today. In fact, this passage starts with a therefore. Actually, a string of therefores in this passage. Which means we can't, 
we should not, actually we dare not, engage in today's exhortations without keeping in clear view all the framework that Paul put together for us to get here. Paul, writing to a church in Ephesians that, like all churches, was struggling to live in the reality of what they believed. That God, who he confessed was God this morning, is the greatest power that there is, greater than those old masters, the world and the devil and the flesh. And that he manifests this power in one ultimate act, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that this act was done explicitly for the Ephesians, for you and I, that we might be resurrected, no longer dead under the powers of those old oppressors, but alive, heirs to the power of Christ, and that the Holy Spirit is working in us now to realize that power that we are already heirs to. That's the context. And it's in light of all of this that Paul tells us that we have the Spirit's guidance, that we have unique and diverse gifts, that we have a powerful community all put together to help us walk in this new way. That's the context that we can't forget. We talked last week about how Paul divides this new walk into two general categories, the purity and peace of the church. Last week, we talked about what the peace of Christ looks like in the church. Truth, vulnerability, sinless anger, generosity, and language that builds up. This week, we're going to talk about what Paul says about purity, and I know this is a loaded topic. Peace should be just as loaded, probably. I think we're as guilty of betraying the peace of Christ, if not more, than the purity of Christ. But in our stream of the church, we tend to emphasize purity intensely. Not only that, but we tend to lean into one side of what Paul's going to set up as the spectrum of purity. Some of you, like myself, might even quietly label yourself a purity culture survivor. And if so, this very word might be triggering. And I want to acknowledge that. But while I acknowledge that, I want to ask you, as much as your history allows, to engage with what Paul has to say this morning, because what Paul has to say is true, and it holds regardless of what your background what the topic is. But I think what Paul offers us today is challenging, both because, honestly, it does identify much much of what we expect it to identify as sin, but also because it expands that maybe a lot further than we're used to seeing it in the church. Paul's direct. Right off the bat, he says it, Sexual morality should not be named among us, he calls, he says, calling it impurity. Paul's direct, so let's also be direct with one another. We can't engage with what it looks like to walk well in Jesus Christ without understanding that in God's design and plan for his image bearers, 
and for our new walk, there are real sexual expectations. And our deviation from those expectations, here he calls impure. And that puts it under that big, massive, heavy umbrella of sin. But we also have to acknowledge that he doesn't stop there. He also names another form of impurity that some of us may find a bit surprising. Along with sexual immorality, Paul says that covetousness is also not to be named that too is impurity and is sin. I mentioned last week that in his What Does It Mean to Be the Church framework, Paul is somewhat general in his descriptions of sin and disobedience. In other letters, he lists the do's and don'ts, or maybe rather the put-ons and put-offs of the new life a little more specifically. Uh, And I think that's intentional here, but not because he's only addressing two specific forms of impurity or two that are the worst, or even in this corporate letter that are most corporate. What I think this is is something that we call a merism. A merism is a literary device where two extremes of something are named, and it really implies everything in between, so like morning and evening, And I think what Paul is doing here is he's imagining the entire moral law, which, if you will, includes all Ten Commandments. But in these two impurities, he sees two kind of opposite tensions of immorality. And I'll tell you what, if our churches tell us anything, he has a point. Keller points this out in his handling of this passage, and um, I think he's quite correct. He says that just about any church that you could go to will fall into one of two categories. On one hand, some of them claim that the Bible is outdated and narrow in its understanding of sexuality, but it's right on in terms of greed, treatment of the poor, injustice, etc., And then the other churches proclaim, usually very loudly, that the Bible's sexual ethic and deep, and the deep need for a culture to return to it are important, but they're relatively silent, if not explicitly unbiblical, in terms of greed and injustice and treatment of the poor. And if We read what Paul offers here and faithfully respect the whole truth of what Scripture is saying. We will see that both sexual immorality and covetousness and everything in between are impure and equally so. So to walk in a worthy manner, rather in the way that we once walked, we must accept and practice what Scripture says about sexuality We must accept and practice what Scripture says about justice and generosity. And you know what? He doesn't get too detailed here about what this looks like. But, you know, before you see that as just a big open door for license, I think it's pretty clear throughout Scripture if we've engaged with it. And I think if people are... um, 
engaging in the things that we're called to, knowing the story of God and his people in scripture and looking continually to Jesus Christ and being taught his word and engaging with one another in our gifts. I think Paul is assuming that we will know, both intellectually and instinctively, what sexual morality and generosity look like. And the rest of the moral law that makes up the purity of Christ. I'm going to engage with this idea a bit next time, but for for the sake of simple and direct exhortation, I will say that it's pretty clear in the prescriptive statements of Scripture, and I think maybe even more clear in the descriptive statements that we have early in Genesis, that God's plan for sexual purity is pretty specific. What it says in a nutshell, if this isn't something that we already know, is that sex is a gift from God, given to humanity to be practiced exclusively within the bonds of marriage between a man and a woman, to promote their intimacy, their oneness, for their mutual enjoyment, and when and if God wills for reproduction. This is what it looks like to follow the the sexual ethic. It's a tongue twister. The sexual ethic that God calls us to. And to behave otherwise, or according to Christ and how he talks about sin, even to intend to behave otherwise or to fantasize about behaving otherwise is sin. Now, that word sin is tricky for us because I think it's so much bigger than what we've boiled it down to. (laughs) But this is brokenness. This is a deviation from what we're intended to do. And if we're going to walk worthily, we're to move away from the deviations that we live in towards the truth that God has put in front of us. Now, I have a note here to catch people. Didn't have any any mumbled amens, so that's good. But we have to realize that we're sitting there on the inside going, yeah, preach it. Moral exhortation is a tricky thing. It often is a reaction, often our response to that is a reaction of pride and self-deception maybe even that divisive and slanderous stuff we talked about yesterday or last week. None of us are pure. Moral exhortation should always be taken personally. <laughs> we also have to see that while this puts, that this puts us in some uncomfortable places in our culture, that's a fair thing to, to acknowledge. But being called to a new life and a new walk in Christ, one that is specifically contrasted with the way we used to walk, that naturally means that we must put his understanding of these things ahead of our cultures. That things like sexual morality are not little things. It's not an outdated and uptight tradition. 
Rather, it's what we're called to. And it's so important that Paul tells us not even to fool around with it. Paul's exhortation here is that no filthiness or foolish talk or crude crude joking. And we have to pause for a second. Last week, I said that language that builds up, right? Divisive language. Wasn't a list of things you shouldn't say, but it's a way of communicating. I think just like this, this is not a prohibition against particular words. It's not a prohibition against humor or particular jokes. It's definitely not a prohibition of ever talking at all about sex. That one's gotten us into a lot of trouble, I think, in our culture. But rather, like with divisive language, it warns us against speaking in ways that might, I don't know, soften the reality of the purity of Christ. Ways that might tempt or provoke or excuse sexual impropriety. And just as with devices language, this seems to be a bit of a moving target. We're going to talk about wisdom next week and how that plays into this. But what's important for us to see in this exhortation is that sexual morality is not unimportant to our walk, just as unity is not unimportant to our walk. We must understand it to be important. And just in case we're sitting there on our righteous pedestal, Paul also speaks of covetousness. And he speaks of it as if it's clear and understood. And I'll tell you what, I grew up in a church culture that regularly, somewhat insistently, maybe even shamingly, explained to me every minute detail of what sexual impurity was. But almost never mentioned covetousness. Except naming it in the Ten Commandments and then maybe tacking on some mumbo-jumbo about how, well, if you've broken any of the other commandments, you've probably broken this one too. As if this indescribable last commandment was just some kind of gotcha add-on that made sure nobody could be too self-righteous, more or less subordinate to the other nine. That's not how Paul sees covetousness. It's not an add-on. And it's not supposed to be hard to understand. It's not just the last of the Ten Commandments. He's basically seeing this as half of what purity is and clearly defined, because it is. Though if you've grown up in the same stream of the church as me, you may not have been taught that. Maybe it's been minimalized or explained away as a liberal misunderstanding of the Old Testament. But if you look at the law, like if you look at the law, this great picture that God gave of his righteousness and justice and peace, and how Israel as his people were to live up to this. Even if you just look at the moral law, the ideas behind covetousness are clear and prohibited as explicitly, I think maybe more emphatically than those behind sexual immorality. Covetousness is not just desiring what other people have. In the Greek here, it's greed in all of its forms. Avarice, insatiableness, greediness. 
The Greek translation of, of the Old Testament, Habakkuk, says, Woe to him that covets an evil covetousness in his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the powers of evil. So, this impurity that Paul names speaks to this desire to gain something for yourself, to build up wealth, to find security and safety, even from evil itself, through your own means, through taking and gathering to yourself. And it speaks to all of the calls of justice and the law. Maybe the most emphatic part of the law in the Old Testament is Israel's call to justice, call to care for the alien and the widow and the orphan, call to give, to forgive debts, to release slaves, to care for the sojourner. It was based on their understanding of possession in two ways. First, all that they had was understood to belong to God that it was given to them in a particular way for a particular purpose. And they had lots of laws about property and how and who it could pass to and how it came back to where he intended because this was the understanding. It's God's land, it's God's resources, he has a plan for it, we are stewarding it. The second way is that unlike the wealth and resources of the world, God, Yahweh, has resources that are not scarce but are abundant. So Israel was to live in a way that trusted in the generosity of God and his plan for his resources. Trusting that he would meet every need they had and in that trust, allowing them to meet the needs of those around them. And any attempt to care for themselves through the building up of wealth rather than to trust God and care for others was covetousness. Just as God has a specific understanding of sexuality and deviating from that is sin, he has a specific understanding of possession and security and generosity. And deviating from that also is sin. And just as our sexual ethic looks very different from our culture around us, how we view our resources looks very different from our culture around us. And if that seems odd, that's probably because in your experience, like mine, the church has embraced the sexual, the sexual ethic of scripture against culture, but it has never or barely spoken in a way that seems to embrace the resource ethic of scripture and actually embraces our culture's understanding of covetousness and baptizes it as biblical. And the reason for that is, if you've experienced that, is because you, like me, have grown up in one of those churches that Keller would put in the second category. And in that church culture, the picture that Paul works out in the Old Testament the picture of the church in Acts that they lived with, it looks a bit sketchy. I used to read a lot of Lewis with my students when I was a teacher. He's about as approachable as anybody in the church, so it was good to read with them. 
We'd re read Mere Christianity with my seniors every year, and oh man, you should have seen the faces on my upper middle class conservative Christian kids when you get to that often missed section of Mere Christianity where talking about what a good Christian government might look like, and Lewis is hemming and hawing, and he's not sure. And he says, well, if there is a biblical social government economic structure, it probably looks a lot more like socialism than anything else. And all the kids go, what? <laughs> I thought Lewis was a good Christian. Now, Lewis nor myself are endorsing a worldly version of socialism. But to live in the purity of Christ in terms of covetousness, it means a level of giving and sharing and caring and sacrificing that is very, very contrary to our American system. And I'll dig in a bit and say that if that bothers you, that's your wisdom teeth crying out for an extraction. To live in a way that stores up wealth for myself against the uncertainty of this world and is unconcerned about the welfare of my neighbor is to live oppressed by the evil powers that we are supposed to be free from. Free from that power, we trust in God's abundance and we give. And to live under that old oppression is just as much sin, it is just as much impurity as to live outside of his sexual understanding. Okay. Spent a lot of time teaching around the text this morning. <laughs> Things that aren't explicitly in here behind it, because partially because I think Paul assumed, assumes that I will. He assumes that if the Ephesians are reading this, they either know about what it looks like to be impure, or they're going to talk about it. But I've spent very little time on some of the in-text questions that you may have. Not even to be named. Let no one deceive you. Don't become partners with them. These are important too, and these are often misapplied. So I'm not gonna spend a long time here. I wanna address them. First, we need to be careful in the context of all of this and the context in which Paul is speaking not to read this as an exhortation towards what we like to call hedging off the church. This idea that in a moral age, in an immoral age, what we need to do is see the world out there is so wicked that we can't even interact with them. We should hunker down in our little purity bubble and just wait for this whole thing to be over. This is absolutely not what Paul has in mind. It's not the way that Paul and the church engage with the culture around them. And in their day, their world was just as corrupted by the world and the devil and the flesh as it is today. We don't live in a special time that's extra horrible out there. We just live in a time. So we have to be careful that we read those things, not even let it be named among you, don't be deceived, don't partner with them. We don't read that as a reason not to interact with our neighbors. First, because Paul's actually talking more about the people in the church than the church outside of it. And hedging ourselves in is really just hedging ourselves in with one another who break these things over and over and over again. So it doesn't really help. He's talking to us. This walk that we are called to in Christ. So what that means is it really should never discourage us 
or surprise us that those who don't know the resurrection of Jesus, that they walk in the ways of the world and the devil and the flesh. In fact, we should be endlessly encouraged by the common grace that God has put into this world the things are not worse than many times our neighbors, even that don't know Jesus, embody purity and peace in ways that, by all rights, none of us should. That's evidence for his love and his plan to rescue and to restore. But we, he argues, should know better. We should walk in ways that are in line with this new life that we have, and we need to see that where we still walk influenced by the world and the devil and the flesh, we are walking in ways that are not proper among the saints. But even that is not, encouraged, or not intended to discourage us. As we stumble along the way, remember, we're infants. Because Paul says here that he's specifically responding to false teaching, these deceptive and empty words. What this suggests is that to the Ephesians, purity is, sorry, what this suggests is the Ephesians were hearing teaching that told them that purity and peace were unimportant to the church of Christ. Teachings that told them that there is little to no consequence if believers are impure, either by arguing that there are no implications to the inheritance that we now have, or by arguing for impurity as purity. And what this results in is impurity being named among them. After have to think about the way that names have been used throughout Ephesians. This isn't meaning that we don't talk about it. That's not what Paul's saying. He's rather talking about being named among them as something that characterizes who they are in the church. Their identity, who they are, even who they see themselves in as see themselves as in Christ, has become impure. And to be to be associated as a church in that way is to represent the body of Christ in a way that's wrong. Now, this kind of teaching is present today as well. Often today, it comes in to placate those of us who are struggling under the weight of sin to help us not feel that weight so much. Sometimes it's well-intended because I don't struggle under the weight of sin well. It usually causes me to do some weird things and people want me to, you know, just, come on. <laughs> but we get kind of two kinds of teaching. Some teach that because we are righteous in Christ, because our, then therefore our actions have no importance. Live however you like because you belong to Christ. We call this antinomianism, and it's a perversion of the gospel of grace that we love. Brothers and sisters, and any who are here who are considering what it is to walk with Jesus, if you know Jesus Christ or if you come to know him, your sins are forgiven. All of them yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Nothing can take that away from you. But that does not mean that your actions are inconsequential. Because even though no impurity can change the fact that you are forgiven, 
The fact that you are forgiven will change the hold that impurity has on you. And therefore, we must reject the lie that we can live in our impurity because we've been saved from it. Others attempt to convince us that what Scripture says about impurity is, in fact, not what Scripture says about impurity. Because of translation or tradition or conspiracy, whatever reason it is, what we once understood as sin isn't really sin. I've seen this trend for a while now in terms of sexuality. I would argue that I've seen this trend for even longer in terms of covetousness. I don't always think it's a malicious attempt. There are places where tradition has gotten in the way of Scripture, and we have to be honest about those things, and we have to wrestle with those things together. I think sometimes this is an attempt to just bring clarity, but it comes misguided. Sometimes it is <laughs> malicious. But to go about redefining what the Scriptures say about sexuality has taken a few forms recently, arguing that our translations for some of these words is based on a tradition of hermeneutics that doesn't really exist. I'm not going to take the time here to walk through these teachings. If it's something that you've been curious about, I'd love to talk to you about it. But what happens is it becomes more and more tempting to bend biblical understanding of, of sexuality and of covetousness to meet up with our cultural expectations. And a result that church is confused about what God's intentions are. On the other hand, our cultural understanding that greed is good has been spoon-fed to the church for generations. We've married our worldly economic structures to Scripture in a way that, when we're honest about them, are as perverse as anything on the sexual side. We've baptized prophets, financial security, hoarding, usury, the neglect for the poor and the marginalized, and called them virtue. Because we can't read the law and the prophets and the epistles and Jesus himself with integrity without seeing, then we have grossly lost the plot when it comes to covetousness. And so Paul is telling the Ephesians that the way to win this battle against the world and the devil and the flesh is not to follow teaching that would see them give up the fight, but to be honest with themselves and with one another about their struggle with impurity, about their oppression under the world and the devil and the flesh, and to engage with all the things that they have access to in Christ, all these things that Paul has laid out for them already so that they might walk in a new way. Because, Paul tells us, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or covetousness has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. It's because of these things that the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. If you remember that term, the sons of disobedience from chapter 2, it represents all of those whose inheritance comes from the world and the devil and the flesh rather than God. So we read this, and we take a really hard swallow in our throats, and we say, I think we're in trouble. Because there is none of us that are pure in these things. And I will say, none of us that are impure in any of these things 
Like, I'll tell you what, I'm really suspicious when someone comes to me and says, well, it's just not my struggle. And by the way, I always hear this about sexual immorality, never the other side. Partially, I'm suspicious because I know and have experienced the statistics. Too many people tell me that's not their struggle for it to be true. But also because I think the way that we have pushed purity apart from grace has created some narrow categories for what it looks like. That even if you don't struggle with lust or with greed in the same way as your neighbor does, you probably still struggle with it. You just might not have categories for it. And so that means that if impurity keeps us from our inheritance, well, then we're all sons and daughters of disobedience, and we're all going to experience the wrath of God. And what are we even doing here? But again, this is where context is important. And why you can't use chapter 4, Verse 5 is a proof text against your sinning neighbor. You just can't do it. Because all of this is in the context of everything that has come before it. It is the big therefore at the end of all these things that Paul has said. This lack of inheritance hinges on what it means for us to be impure, what it means to have an inheritance. And our comfort, our surety stands in the fact that we are not these things. This often feels like semantics, that we do impure things, but we aren't impure. Like there's some intrinsic difference between something we do and who we are. It's weird, it seems like a cop-out, but I'm going to tell you, in Jesus, there is a difference. In Jesus, there is a tension that exists here between what we do and who we are that exists nowhere else. Like everywhere else, in every other moral system, to do evil is to be evil, full stop. The ratio might change. How big your bucket of good has to be in order to overcome your bucket of evil may be different in one system or another, but it's always the same. If you want to be good, you do good. Only in Jesus Christ do we see a shift in this understanding. Partially because we see, as sons of disobedience, that our buckets are overflowing so much that there is nothing we can do, there is no system of righteousness where we can like balance that out and be okay. But mostly because we are offered something different in Jesus. We are offered a righteousness that doesn't come from us. In Jesus, we are heirs of the kingdom. In Jesus Christ, in his life, death, and resurrection, we are no longer sons of disobedience. We are now sons of God. And a huge part of Paul's call to walk differently is in an acknowledgement of this tension that we were sons of disobedience. But now we are sons and daughters of God. And he calls us to lean into the gifts of the Spirit to begin reconciling this tension. Last week we looked at chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, 
is the end of our passage. In the midst of the peace conversation, it calls us to look to Christ. To do the hard work of practicing peace, explicitly by looking at the peace that we have in Jesus, who gave all of himself so that we might have peace in him. Well, this couple of verses sit between the purity and peace sections for a reason. Because it implies equally to our purity as it does to our peace. Notice that Jesus is said here to be a pleasing aroma. It's a strange sacrificial language from the Old Testament. It has nothing to do with his hygiene. In the Old Testament, when an animal was sacrificed, it was said that the aroma was pleasing to God. And the aroma had nothing to do with like how it was cooked or for God, it had to do with the purity of the sacrifice. The purer the sacrifice, the more pleasing the aroma. And Jesus Christ, who sacrificed himself for us, was the truly pure one. He took on all of our disobedience and faced the wrath of the cross and became a pure and pleasing offering to God for our sakes. So just as we try to walk in peace together, we look to Jesus Christ, our Prince of Peace. As we try to walk in purity in Jesus Christ, we look to him, our pure and pleasing offering. So that as we walk along this path with him, we grow in purity together. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I confess not only that I am impure, uh, but I struggle uh, to know what that looks like, to desire to walk with Christ in purity. Lord, I, I pray that you would turn my eyes towards your Son. that your spirit would make him alive in me, that I may walk this path better today than I did yesterday. I pray this for all of us here. I pray this for us as a church. That though we struggle and though we stumble and though our mistakes will always be there to see, we may look at one another and our neighbors may look at us and see an example of a people who walk with you in your purity and peace. I pray this for the sake of your glory and for your kingdom in the name of your Son. Amen.